thank you for coming out this Friday afternoon and Happy New Year with Wagner. <laughs> I'm here to introduce this total diva or anti-diva. And first, however, I'd like to express thanks for our sponsorship by the German department of NYU, Deutsche House, to the NYU vice provost, Uli Baer, for instigating and supporting the move to a larger space meant to show hospitality in conjunction with what Derrida calls hospitality, reminding us of the originary link between hospitality and hostility. I'd like to ask that I can be permitted now to thank myself. Okay. <laughs> Above all, to thank myself for putting up with Slavoj's shit for so many years. <laughs> Yet, I come in peace, even though he has maimed me and named me Das Bitch. And even though it doesn't fit, it has caught on. The admittedly dubious vulgarity of this lexicon does not originate with me, but I must now own it and not resort to childish sonographies of urgently asserted justice. The child starts up the engine early on of designating the failure of justice. It's not fair. He started it. But my child parts will not prevail and unleash today, even though I have taken custody of this child, Slavoj Zizek. This wunderkind, now wunderkind, the wonder and wounder about to give us a close-up of Hegel's wounded sight of utterance and philosophical questioning. The way Zizek afflicts or inscribes wounds deserves a number of victory laps on my part, but I will desist, as promised, from taking aggressive stances, even though he started it. And will turn back into the Nietzsche baby that I was brought up to be losing the ressentiment that could have been stored up all these years in a festering silo of toxicity. No, I'm mean, but I'm clean. And I've said this before, I am Josephine, queen of the Mausvolk, and will not be intimidated by a phallus-bearing Hegelian. Bring it on. Before I disappear, I want to name two tasks that I feel I have. I want to, set, to thank my best fiend for speaking to us this evening and to immunize the audience from any obscenity that may emerge in the course of his perfidious delivery. If these spirits have offended, think but this and all is mended. German intellectual history has hidden a deviant track off which literature and philosophy receive unceasing life-affirming energy. Our global distinguished professor, Slavoj Žižek.
who commands many continuous fields and several languages with authority and often poignant acuity, belongs to that part of the German tradition, broken, searing, disturbing, run by rogue itineraries and disaster prone, and comes to us more originally from Greek theater, nailed by the German romantics, and Schlegel, not Hegel, as permanent parabasis, that which disrupts, marked by deregulated outbursts, often dropping off so a solar storm of insights and killer clusters of obscenity. You will need to understand Zizek according to the reading protocols of this tradition, minoritized and repressed in the context of cult vitality and stealth intelligence to grasp him as part of an essential articulation of a destiny. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. First, my, of course, instant reply to, uh, to Abital. I liked, and it's very appropriate for a, an event taking place within a German department that he, how, how was it, he started it or what, no? I'm sure if Hitler were to be arrested in 45 and accused of crimes, he would have said, no, the Jews started it. You know? <laughs> uh, another thing, uh, I will also give now my compliment to Avital. You know, when I first met her and noticed her behavior, which sometimes reminds me of my own behavior, I was told by some friends that, you know, this shouldn't distract you beneath all that sarcastic, uh, surface, there is a warm human person. After knowing her, I can guarantee it. There is no warm human person <laughs> behind. He is what you see, you know. But now a more serious point to admit. Uh, you know, people often think, why do we speak like this to another B and Tabital? And I can tell you this, uh, look, there are ways, it's easy to speak uh, to be kind so that you speak kindly of a person. That's boring. You can be brutal and speak to a person in a brutal way. It's simple. Then you have the first inversion, British are, the British people are specialized in this, to humiliate someone, but to do it in a very kind way. <laughs> this is also, you just have to have some elementary cliches, manners. But you know what we are doing? to humiliate each other in all possible ways, but so that there is love beneath it, that we like, this is quite an art, I think. You know, and she is one of the few persons with whom I can do this. Okay, uh, you mentioned the obscenities and so on. Unfortunately, there will be only some of them at the end, so let me go to it, because I have some things which I considered at least I do, important to say. Some minor stuff, maybe I used already it in some other lectures, but to my best knowledge, not here in New York. So Hegelian wound. I will believe with something that happened to me a couple of years ago in India, in New Delhi. We all spoke English there, and then some post-colonial people from there complained like, why do we speak English? 
They claimed the very fact of speaking English in India is a form of cultural colonialism which censors their own true identity. Their argument was something like, we have to speak in an imposed foreign language to express our innermost identity, and does this not put us in a position of radical alienation? Even our resistance to colonization has to be formulated in the language of the colonizer. Of course, I explode that back. My first point, and this is typical of big nations, was that they treated me as if English is my native language, you know. As if for small city nations like mine, Slovene, it's normal that you are not allowed your language, no? But my basic reaction was a different one. Yes, you were imposed a foreign language, but this very, when, when you are colonized by a foreign language, of course, you experience this external imposition as a loss, colonization being deprived of, let's call it, a true essence, I don't mean it in an essentialist nation, but like you are deprived of something, and then you engage in decolonization, how to get your true identity back. But what I'm saying is that this very imposition of a foreign language, Evie, English in this case, created that very X unknown quantity which was oppressed by it. That is say, what when Indians feel oppressed, what, uh, what is oppressed, I claim, is absolutely not the pre-colonial India. What they fight for is, let's call it, and I totally support it, of course, an authentic dream of a new universalist democratic India, and this strictly emerged through colonization. The space for it was opened by colonization. So it is crucial to know, this is just a, a, a remark, that this role of English language was clearly perceived by many intellectuals, especially among Dalits, the untouchables, among whom I have many friends, the lowest caste. A large section of Dalits, they still welcome English because their idea is that the English language is precisely because it's a foreign language. It provides a kind of a distance for them. It means a space not to feel entrapped into all the ancient hierarchies, castes, and so on, and so on. And I claim that this is a big lesson that we should learn today when we fight whatever remains of cultural and more and more economic colonization. Let me take a totally different example. Malcolm X, he was, I claim, following the same insight when he adopted X as his family name, Malcolm X. The point of choosing X and thereby signaling that the slave traders who brought the enslaved Africans from their homeland brutally deprived them of their ethnic roots and so on. X means we are deprived of our roots. The point with Malcolm X was not 
as in that stupid TV series to make you feel good, liberal. It was very popular, Alexis Haleyer, who was the author, Roots, you remember. Let's search for our roots and so on and so on. No, Malcolm X was well aware that this X signals, on the one hand, brutally being cut off, deprived from, but also the unique chance of freedom that this offers. He was fully aware of it. He was fully aware that every search for roots, like, ooh, let's go back or let's reconnect with our roots, is precisely what colonialists want. I claim that it's totally wrong to think that colonialism, or today's post-colonial neocolonialism, works it as a, what some cultural critics call this cheap consumerist Americanization, you know, like, the colonizers wanted all us to be the way they are. No, if there is something they are afraid, it's this. The first gesture of colonizers is always the message to local people, and usually it is formed in this hypocritically respectful way. You have a wonderful, authentic, wise way of life. It's much wiser than our vulgar, Western, materialist, imperialist culture. Just look, they are wonderful reading. <coughs> uh, British colonial administrators, their memoirs of India. They are full of this bullshit, you know, like I learned from an ordinary poor uh, uh, Indian peasant more wisdom than from all uh, Western uh, managers and so on and so on. And so I think that, uh, don't also forget something that I remember from my youth. South Africa uh, apartheid. You know, you should do something which not many people do. You should look a little bit into the official pro-apartheid literature. How did they justify apartheid? It was not blacks are inferior. No, it's, of course it was hypocritical. But it's interesting what they said. They said something like, if we just introduce universal egalitarian democracy into South Africa, what will happen with all those Bushman Hottentots with their unique culture? You know, they even uh, like to evoke all this bullshit, you know, that when we, Boers or Englishmen, open up a mine, we just do it brutally. But when an African native mines into the earth or enters a mountain, he first asks the spirits of the mountain for permission and so on, all that bullshit and so on. What I'm saying is that the first step of really fighting colonialism is to, I'm even tempted to say to treat them, the others, as ordinary, dirty, evil people as we are. You know, I think the most refined and disgusting form of colonialism today is that shitty fake respect, which is, I claim, just inverted racism, you know, you know in the sense of, like, celebrating uh, Native Americans here, you know, like, oh my God, again, the, the same bullshit, you know. They speak with the spirit of a mountain, they don't just, they know that nature is their mother, they don't just exploit her and so on. I totally understand some of my Native American, Indian, I call them, because they prefer this name, you must know my standing joke, you know. My, all my Native American friends hate the term Native American. They say, ah, if we are native, you are cultural or what, you know. 
And they gave me an excellent argument to use the term Indian. They said, in this way, our name is at least a tribute to white man's stupidity, you know. <laughs> they thought they are in India and so on, you know. No, but, you know, one of them told me, I can prove you through historical writings that we did much more, uh, we uh, ruined much more nature than we killed more buffaloes than one people. We burned more forests and so on. But I understood them. They hate this patronizing, uh, respectful attitude. So, again, Today, more than ever, I claim, this is important. That, of course, to see how, although colonialism was an extremely uh, traumatic, brutal uh, wound, something which was indescribably brutal, but the solution is not to return back, but, but precisely to see this deprivation, being deprived of ethnic roots, and so on, as a unique chance of freedom, of opening. And among others, for example, as you probably know, in South Africa, that was the whole policy of uh, African National Congress. The one who was for uh, uh, identity politics, blacks should uh, return to their own culture, was King Butelezi, who was on the payroll of the white regime, of course. No? So uh, what I want to say here is that this is how I read, I'm slowly coming to the title of my talk, uh, this Hegelian wound. Wagner has this famous phrase uh, towards the end of Parsifal, the wound can be healed only by the spear that smote it. Die Wunde schließt der Sperr nur der Schluck, which means the very disintegration of traditional forms of life opens up the space for liberation. Because, again, I return to the case of India to make it clear. My point is that, of course, Indians want to get rid today of the remainders of colonization. Of course, they dream about something that they want to get back. But I claim what they want to return to has nothing to do with previous pre-colonial India. Now, I am not saying that the pre-colonial India was uh, neither a paradise nor a hell, but it was simply something outside of it. It was a vast, complex network of different traditions, a heterogeneous mess, and uh, so I claim that we should always, again, bear in mind, apropos decolonization, uh, 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 that what we are returning to, it's always it's something that emerges through this very return. It appears that we are returning to something, but we are creating that something through the very return to it. Now I come slowly from here to Hegel, to what I consider one of Hegel's wonderful points. You know the thesis on black Athens, black Athena, the idea being that Hegel and others as Eurocentrists, they were not aware how much uh, the classical Greek culture borrowed from uh, African and Oriental sources and so on. I mean, did these guys read Hegel? Hegel not only knew it, but emphasized it. Here is Hegel's surprising description of the ancient Greek, the great classical culture. I quote Hegel from uh, uh, 
his uh, lectures on the history of uh, fine arts. They, ancient Greeks, certainly received the substantial beginnings of their religion, culture, and social relations more or less from Asia, Syria, and Egypt. But they have so very much obliterated, getilked, the foreign aspect of this origin, transformed, reversed, and made it truly different, that what they, as we value, recognize, and love is essentially their own. They have, so to speak, ungratefully, undankbar, forgotten their foreign origin, put it in the background, perhaps burying it in the darkness of the mysteries which they have kept secret for even, from even themselves. They have not only done this, they have not only used and enjoyed what they have brought before themselves and made from out of themselves, but they have become conscious of and gratefully and joyfully represented to themselves this at-homeness of their whole existence, their very own beginning and origin, and so on and so on. So Rebecca Comey, who wrote a wonderful book on Hegel and whom I rely here, um, uh, enumerated all the terms that Hegel uses for how ancient Greeks related to this uh, 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 Asiatic and African cultures. Conquering, then repressing, siegen, zurückdrängen, abolition, fortfallen, expanding, tilgen, annihilation, vertilgen, effacement, auslöschung, erasure, verwischung, stripping away, abstreifung, concealment, verstricken, uh, and so on and so on. Now you will say, but then, doesn't this mean that Hegel simply thought, yes, they got rid of all this shit to give birth to the noble Greek culture? No, um, we don't have time to go into it, but just to intrigue you a little bit in Hegel. No, Hegel's point is here that this, far from being something original, like the miracle out of nowhere, this Greek miracle is an appearance of innocence and originality based on an extremely brutal repression, which is even felt, and then in a little bit naive way, Hegel says that the, uh, the uh, fundamental feature of Greek status is, which is in some naive way true even, at least from our later perspective, that their statues, the heads, have eyes but you don't feel the gaze in that eye. The object doesn't return the gaze. They do something what some later uh, theorists, uh, art theorists, apropos Manet, called looking without seeing. And then Hegel claims, now this is a nice point, because Hegel doesn't say yes, because we are naive at the beginning, only afterwards all this comes, gaze. He says that this gaze is not simply an, absent from ancient Greek art, it's present is in them as repressed, verdrängt, and he gives a wonderful example of that statue or mythical creature of Argos, you know, the disgusting divine figure with thousand eyes all around uh, his body, and now you will say, okay, but this is oriental vulgarity. No, Hegel says, it's incredible, Every work of art is, in a way, like this statue of Argos, where every little piece of it, every surface, is an eye staring back to you. 
And what I find so nice is that although Hegel still appears quite classicist, like uh, art is beautiful, but he evokes as a model of art some monstrously ugly figure. Uh, so let's go on. This brings us back to Wagner's Die Wunde schließt, Der Spernur, Der Sie Schluck. Hegel's point, if we generalize it, is that uh, we don't have some immediate naive beginning. That's the usual story of Hegel. No? You begin with uh, some naive, immediate beauty, whatever, and then you get alienation, and so on, and so on. No, the wound is at the beginning, a catastrophe. And then, when things go on, you overcome the wound. You know, Hegel's famous saying, the spirit is strong enough to heal its own wounds. But what Hegel is saying there is not the usual stupidity that spirit plays a game with itself. You know, you alienate yourself, then you reappropriate your otherness. No, Hegel basically is saying that you heal the wound by reflectively recognizing the wound itself as its own solution. You just change your perspective and uh, recognize again in the wound itself the solution. And we can immediately apply this to the example of India. Yes, the imposition of English language was the wound. But how do you fight it? Not by trying to return to some uh, uh, to some pre-modern unity and so on, but fully endorsing, accepting to the wound in the sense of perceiving the, the liberating potential of the wound. And more generally, Hegel goes here to the end and elevates this paradox to the fundamental feature of subjectivity as such, subjectivity as self-consciousness. Uh, let me quote a passage from, from, uh, uh, from uh, Hegel's phenomenology. It's incredible. I quote, abstractly, being evil means singularizing myself in a way that cuts me off from the universal, which is the rational, the loss, the determinations of spirit. But along with this separation, there arises being for itself and for the first time, the universally spiritual what ought to be. So it is not the case that rational consideration has an external relationship to evil. It is itself what is evil. And Hegel's point is simply that, oh, even he applies this even to, uh, even to religion, that uh, Hegel is a great partisan of the fall. He claims that fall itself creates the good from which it is the fall. You don't have some, even if it's only hypothetically uh, 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 presupposed, you don't have some goodness, paradise, whatever, from which we fall. Fall itself creates that from which it is the fall. I don't have time to go with it by my next book, uh, Absolute Recoil, where uh, I develop this extensively with reference to uh, Hegel's term, uh, absolute Gegenstoss, absolute recoil. This means an entity for Hegel is emerges, as it were, out of its own loss. Fall is not fall from good into evil. First, 
You first lose a thing and through its loss, you, the thing emerges from you and then you can try to, you can try to, uh, to uh, regain it. And again, Hegel developed this, but let's keep it now in detail. Apropos, uh, apropos the fall, Adam, and so on. Uh, now, let me go a step further and mention another notion, which I think is a beautiful notion from Kabbalah, uh, first elaborated by uh, uh, the uh, Kabbalic author, uh, you know, uh, uh, Isaac Luria, 16th century, the notion of broken vessel. You know the idea, very briefly, God. No, it's a wonderful thought, this Kabbalah, this part of Kabbalah, this so-called Lurianic Kabbalah. The idea is that first God was the infinite, uh, formless, without purpose, and the pure energy. Then, and this all good theology for this moment, God doesn't directly create the world. First, there must be a contraction. Like, God must create first nothing in order to, to fill, fill this nothing with something. But then, okay, to go very quickly, the idea yes, is that it this creation of external reality. Uh, there is the light of creation is too intense and the vessel, as a metaphor for the created universe, the vessel is shattered and then we humans should help God bringing it back together through our, uh, uh, through our uh, 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 spiritual exercises and so on and so on. Uh, now, the consequences of such an approach for literature were spelled out by Walter Benjamin in his early essay, The Task of the Translator. There, Benjamin uses this Lurianic notion of the broken vessel to discern the inner working of a process of translation. Quote from Walter Benjamin. Just as fragments of a vessel, in order to be articulated together, must follow one another in the smallest detail, but need not resemble one another, so instead of making itself similar to the meaning of the original, the translation must rather lovingly and in detail, in its own language, form itself according to the way of signifying of the original. To make both, both it means the original and the translation, recognizable as the broken parts of a greater language, just as fragments are broken parts of a vessel. Are you aware what uh, Benjamin is saying here? To put it in a simplified way, he transposes translation from metaphor into metonymy. Usually we conceive translation as a metaphoric substitute of the original. We have the original, which is the real thing, and then the translation should recapture as much as possibly the spirit of the original. But for Benjamin, and that's the meaning of the idea of broken vessel here, original and translation are both fragments. They are put at the same level. So in a great, in a good translation, the point is not to be as similar as possible to recapture the spirit of the original. But precisely, again, to treat the original as a fragment and then to fill in precisely 
if you want, what is already missing in the original, so that translation, original and its other translations together form some kind of uh, totality. In other words, the gap that, in the traditional view, separates the original from its always imperfect translation is transposed back into the original itself. The original itself is already the fragment of a broken vessel, so that the goal of the translation is not to achieve fidelity to the original, but to supplement the original, to treat the original as a broken fragment and to produce another fragment which, again, will not imitate the original, but will fit it as one, as a fragment of a broken whole may fit another. What this means is a very nice paradox, is that uh, already the, uh, what this means is that uh, a good translation, as it were, breaks the vessel even more. Because before translation, you think, the original is it, what we have. But a good translation retroactively devalues the original, makes you aware of how original itself is already a fragment. And now, to make this clear, I want to give you two other examples of the same procedure. They concern not a translation, but something that I always love in works of art, uh, you, you find it either, it's fashionable for the last 40, 50 years, the stagings of great operas where you just change the narrative a little bit. I claim if you really do it in a good way, it's precisely like another fragment of a broken vessel. The original appears to you in a totally different way. Uh, for example, my, one of my examples that I like is you can get it on DVDs. Peter Sellers, already some 20, 25 years ago, he staged the three great Mozart operas, Così fan tutte, Figaro, and Don Giovanni, but without changing any notes or libretto, he changed just a little bit, for example, I hope you know the story so that I don't lose sight telling it, Così fan tutte, you know that uh, Don Alfonso, the philosopher, and Despina, I think it's Despina, the poor servant girl. Despina is usually presented as just flirtatious, lower class. Uh, Peter Sellers, in a real stroke of a genius, he uh, staged it so that it looks that the true traumatic love is between philosopher Alfonso and poor Despina. And because the two of them cannot enact their love, they play all the games with other couples. This is the tragic couple. Or such other small changes, for example, I always quote it in my books, Jean-Pierre Ponel version of Tristan, where in the last act, Tristan dies alone. I mean, for result that this was a night adventure, then let him die. Why should she join him? No, she was pardoned by her father. And all that happens at the end of Wagner's opera, especially. You know, Tristan dying, but then in the last minute, Isolde comes, and it's just the imagination of dying Tristan. And I think that uh, there is even another example more modest. It's not a great book, but it's readable. It was published a couple of years ago by Farrar, Strauss, and so on. You know, Zachary Mason, The Lost Book of the Odyssey. It's, a, again, readable variation on the official 
story. You find, for example, in one of the variations, old Odysseus visited Troy and finds that there is a whole cultural industry there already, you know. They are selling fragments of the, of the, of the, uh, of the arrow by, by which uh, 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 Paris killed Achilles and tell the stories. And Odysseus intervenes there. No, you got it wrong. And they laugh at him. Oh, idiot, you don't get it, and so on. And then in another version, when he, Odysseus, returns to Ithaca, he finds that uh, his wife, Penepole, is happily married with a new guy, and he says, why should I disturb this? And gracefully, he withdraws, and so on. So what's my point here? My point is that uh, I'm not saying, you see, this is my point. I am not saying that this is better than the original, some repressed truth, no. What I'm saying is that this is a Benjaminian approach. Two, the true lesson is that in order to get what Ulysses Odyssey is about, you have to superimpose all these stories. All the, it's, the point is not to reconstruct the original story, but to read all these variations as equal. And now, if you are good God-fearing Christians, I will give you the ultimate example. Uh, the, the seven last words of Christ, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Then truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, and so on and so on. You know them, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, then I thirst, I am thirsty, and so on. Now, the most stupid thing you can do here is what? the two great artists do, one more disgusting than other, Franco Zeffirelli and Mel Gibson. <laughs> they try to reconstruct a whole narrative so that somehow all these words are spoken, no? And the result is so vulgar, like you have God say, uh, Christ says, I forgot in which movie, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then as if part of this being forsaken is, hmm, I'm so thirsty, and <laughs> then they give him to drink, and then say, okay, now I feel better, now it is finished, I commit myself to my, you know, it's total stupidity. The whole point is that they should be, as it were, uh, superimposed, you know. It's wrong to ask, but what is the real, the real world? And this, perhaps, I claim, is the ultimate lesson of Christianity, that uh, precisely to celebrate the breaking of the vessel, in the sense that all you can get is superimposed, fra all you can get is superimposed fragments. Okay, this is the first introductory part. Now comes the surprise. Out of this, I will try to apply the lesson of all this, wound as a redeeming wound and uh, and uh, you know where I see, okay, to give you another example, why am I a totally atheist Christian? You know, in what sense Christ brings freedom? I think the only way to understand it is in this way. Uh, you are desperate. Christ was crucified. You are alone. You cannot count on divine help. I follow Hegel here. Uh, what dies on the cross is not just God. It's not just the son of God. It's God himself. Crucifixion means there is no higher power uh, 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 pulling the string secretly. It means we are left to ourselves. And you said, it's horrible. We are alone, blah, blah. 
Yeah, but that's the freedom that God gave us. You see, to see the very thing that appears as catastrophe as the highest divine gift. Which is why I think the Bible is Hegelian. In what sense Hegelian? <laughs> it's not that you have first bad news and then good news. No. The message of Christ is, you think these are bad news? Look again and you will see that this very news is good news. Like, I die, I raise myself. It's bad news? Yes, but it's your freedom. You cannot rely on me. It's good news. Uh, so what does this mean? Ah, now comes a little bit now to repay you for your patience with this more boring part, now we go into sex and obscenity. I claim that it's only against this Hegelian background that we can really understand, and I say this consciously against the predominant fashion according to which, you know, Freud is passé. You know, like, who needs Freud? Today we live in permissive times. Everything is, uh, uh, everything is permitted. You can do whatever you want, and so on, and so on. I claim that, no, the key element of Freudian discovery is now oppressed more than ever infantile sexuality. I, and this happened in the last 30, 40 years. I think this is the truth of our permissiveness. How, uh, yes, you can do whatever you want with cats, with dogs, with, I don't know, uh, sex, I mean. But uh, children are out. This figure of an innocent child who shouldn't be corrupted with sexuality returned in a forceful way. I even think that even movies like Home Alone are part of this reactionary mythology, you know? Because the small kid there is all-powerful because he is pre-sexual, this pure monster, and so on. So, uh, uh, I incidentally, when I was, when I went to cinema years ago to see Home Alone 1 and 2, I was always on the side of the two bad guys. I would like so much for them to just squash that creep. But what I wanted to say is that uh, it's truly how today, again, the sole remaining prohibition has to do with children. Child sexuality is, this is why child molestation is today almost the highest crime. It's very easy. I think the best way to do an, an, a diagnosis of an epoch is to see what are the ultimate forms of evil in that epoch. No? One is, again, uh, uh, child uh, molestation. Now, of course, when it really happens as rape, Catholic priests, and so on, I am against it. I just want to draw attention to the fact that how this changed. I remember when I was young, 60s, early 70s, uh, hippie movement. At that point, it was the opposite. I remember in communes all around Europe, the whole point was to not only to reassert child sexuality, but even argue that it's part of good education, that parents should play sexual games with their own children. I remember, maybe you remember it if you are old enough, Daniel Cohn-Bendy, the great figure of May 68, who is now a member of European Parliament and so on even. In an interview from that time, he said that as a young student, he worked in a kindergarten where, to relax the attitude, he softly marched to the waiter, small girls there, preschool, and they masturbated him, and that it worked nicely, and so on. Imagine some guy from kindergarten were to say this today. <laughs> now, let's go a step further. Why? Why is uh, 
infantile sexuality prohibited? Why are children, as it were, presumed innocent? What is so difficult for us to grasp, to accept in infantile sexuality? I think it's two features, which are, of course, two sides, two aspects of the same coin. Incidentally, I rely he her partially to my Slovene friend, the greatest Lacanian and claim, uh, Alenka Zupancic, who wrote, uh, 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 who is now writing a book on Freudian sexuality and philosophy. First, are we aware what the strange thing infantile sexuality is? It's a weird entity which is neither biologically grounded, it's unnatural. Sorry, by unnatural, I mean normal straight sexuality is allegedly biologically grounded. No, we copulate children and so on. But child sexuality, it's one big epistemological mess. It comes from this uncertainty, where do children come from? It's basically an epistemological category. So it's neither biologically grounded. Biologically grounded is if you, we can say this at all, it's so-called straight, normal sexuality, nor is it part of our symbolic cultural norms. So it's neither natural nor cultural. Uh, and uh, now comes the really strange thing about it. The Lacanian pupil, half Lacanian, he turned later against him, but he's quite good theorist, Jean Laplanche, put this nicely when he says, I quote from Laplanche's essays on otherness, when it comes to sexuality, man is subject to the greatest of paradoxes. What is acquired through the drives precedes what is innate and instinctual in such a way that at the time it emerges, instinctual sexuality, which is adaptive, so-called normal sexuality with the function of procreation, finds the seat already taken by infantile drives. Now, why, uh, and the reason for this is the link between sexuality and cognition. Infantile sexuality is always linked with this, uh, uh, with this uh, uh, desire to know, cognitive probing, where do children come from, what's the mystery of sexuality, and so on and so on. Again, this is the first paradox of infantile sexuality. Why at all there? Again, it has no adapt. We find something which is from the standpoint of adaptive behavior, reproduction, and so on, totally unnecessary. It's, again, totally useless, unnecessary, a kind of excess from the standpoint of adaptive behavior, plus it's not part of our cultural identity. On the contrary, it's... Uh, prohibited. Uh, now, next thing, where, which is missed even by people who usually uh, support or elaborate infantile sexuality, is that it is not enough to assert infantile sexuality as the plural multiplicity of polymorphous perverse drives, which are then totalized by the Oedipal genital norm. Infantile sexuality is not a truth or base or some kind of original productive site, base of sexuality which is then oppressed, totalized, regulated by the genital norm. 
You know, this is vaguely the, the lesbian and of some others view that uh, infantile sexuality is this uh, pre-edipal paradise, multiplicity of drives, uh, 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 inconsistent, uh, 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 polymorphous r domain of freedom, and then bad Oedipus comes, totalizes it, uh, no, uh, 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 subordinates it to genital uh, heterosexual norm, and so on and so on. I think we should reject this view. Sexuality, that's at least the Lacanian view to which I subscribe, sexuality is defined by the fact that there is no sexual relationship. And Polymorphous perverse play of partial drives only takes place against the background of this impossibility or antagonism. Sexual act copulation has thus two sides. On the one hand, there is the orgasmic culminating moment of sexuality. On the other side, there is a deadlock of impossibility. It is in performing the act of copulation that the subject experiences this impossibility. Uh, which is why we need uh, fantasies, fantasies which are usually fantasies linked to polymorphous pregenital perverse drives, to, to do it at all, to be able, as it were, to be able to perform. What does this mean? Again, what is fantasy? The original site of fantasy for Freud already is that of a small child overhearing or witnessing parental coitus and unable to make sense of it. What does all this mean? What are my parents doing and so on? So you fantasize. Now, you know all, for example, you know all that what Freud called infantile sexual theories, how children are made, and so on and so on. Now you will say, okay, this is a phase for children, but once you grow up, you simply discover what it's all about, how you make love, and you no longer need all these fantasies. The basic insight of Freud and of Lacan is that with regard to sexuality, we are never, we never reach maturity. No matter how adult we are, we always need something that fits the role of infantile sexuality, some, uh, some, some type of crazy fantasy which sustains our sexual activity. What do I mean by this? I remember, maybe you know the story, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, I remember from my youth, I think, I'm not sure it was Der Stern, the German weekly magazine, published uh, in its summer edition a primitive caricature, uh, uh, drawings of four or five men who are asked in a mock interview, what do you dream, what do you want to do, what do you plan to do during the, the following, during summer holidays? And then you have answer for them. One said, ooh, I want to just read good books. Another guy said, I want to, to spend my time on the beach. The third guy says, I want to visit some eccentric country. And then to mock them, you know, while a man, five, six of them is saying this, with each of them, you have like in, in, uh, in, uh, in comic books, this cloud which shows what they really mean, want to do. Of course, in every cloud there is a naked woman, you know. 
now I claim this is theoretically wrong. If anything, the lesson of Freud is the exact opposite. Probably in our male chauvinist permissive times, every man would have answered, if he's not gay, something like, oh, I want to, whatever, screw women. But the secret would be precisely which phantasmatic support does he imagine? You know, one would like to do it, I don't know. There are men whom I know whose idea is, and it's almost, I like it, a beautiful dream. It is that, uh, that the woman should feign indifference. For example, woman leans forward on her knees and is reading a book while you do bam bam from behind. What, <laughs> what, find, what is attractive is the idea that woman ignores it, you know that she is reading a book, and I had a friend who even found it the most sexual thing, where you are all sweating, the man behind doing your work, and then the woman asks you something like, oh my God, that's a nice thought here in Heidegger. Have you any idea how you... So, you know, others, they want to do it on a beach, on an exotic... The lesson of all this, you see, is that the infantile fantasies never disappear. What Lacan means by, what Lacan means by uh, there is uh, there no sexual relationships is precisely this, that we never grow mature. Up to the end, sex needs a phantasmatic support. It's never just you and your partner. That's the first point. And uh, yes, uh, and even when you know how it is done, then something happens when you are adult, which is best exemplified by what happened when I was young to a friend of mine, I love this, it's a beautiful thing. It's of course a nonsense story, but the logic is the right one. This guy finally learned that you do, in order to get children, you have to copulate, perform sexual act. But at the same time, he was a little bit spiritual Christian. He couldn't accept it, that something so vulgar, sweating bodies there, doing those stupid repetitive movements. How can out of that something so noble as a child emerge? Uh, he said, nonetheless, so it must be true that something like, uh, uh, how do you call it, a, a stork brings the child, no? <laughs> and then she invented a wonderful myth, bringing the two together. Yes, you have to make love, to produce a child. But you have to do it beautifully, gently, because while you make love, the stork is observing you. <laughs> and if you impress her by doing it nicely, the stork brings you the child, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is how our sexuality, uh, this is how our sexuality effectively functions. So what this means, ah, now I come to my Lacanian point, is that we should reject the predominant view according to which hegemonic ideology in all its aspects, social, legal, economic, ethical, religious, privileges natural sexuality, the standard reproductive copulation, and tries to repress or suppress the polymorphous perverse sexuality of partial drives, which is considered a social, dangerous, and it's tolerated only as a subordinate preparatory moment of the normal sexual act, like fondling, kissing, as a foreplay, and so on. The best argument against this predominant view is the history of the greatest advocate of this view, of Christianity. 
Here is an important passage, but always ignored, from Jacques Lacan from his Encore, Seminar 20 on Feminine Sexuality. I quote it. Christ, even when resurrected from the dead, is valued for his body, and his body is the means by which communion in his presence is incorporated. Oral drive, sorry, the means of communion is incorporation with which Christ's wife, the church, contents itself very well, having nothing to expect from copulation. In everything that followed from the effects of Christianity, particularly in art, everything is exhibition of the body evoking jouissance. And you can lend credence to the testimony of someone who has just come back from an orgy of churches in Italy, but without copulation, end of quote. So Lacan is very clear here. One should reject the endlessly repeated critical thesis that the Catholic sexual morality imposes normative heterosexuality on the subversive and destabilizing polymorphous sexuality of humans. In contrast to the idea that partial drives are masturbatory, asocial, and so on, while genital sexuality grounds social link, we should insist that there is nothing necessarily asocial in partial drives. They function as the glue of society. They are the very staff of communion. In contrast to the heterosexual couple, which is, as Freud emphasizes, effectively asocial, isolating itself, the couple, from its community, and is therefore uh, 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 heterosexual couple distrusted by church and by army. Let's recall that Freud's two models of crowd, of social link as an amorphous crowd, uh, 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 church, army, both precisely exclude heterosexual link. It's just gang rapes and so on. Let me quote Freud here. Direct, directly sexual tendencies are unfavorable, unfavorable to the formation of groups. The love relation between men and women remains outside this social organization. Even where groups are formed which are composed of both men and women, the distinction between sexes plays no part. Or, to quote Alenka Zupancic's commentary of this, natural copulation is utterly banned from the Christian religious imaginary. For example, but which are full of uh, this uh, pregenital sexuality. For example, images of canonized saints eating the excrements of another person and so on and so on. So the idea is this one, that if you look at the imaginary field of all already medieval Christian mythology, what saints are doing and so on, it's a brutal intrusion precisely of pregenital partial drives. The prohibited thing is precisely copulation. Uh, why, why does the church admit or celebrate precisely this allegedly perverse partial drive and, pro and prohibits, elevating it even in the ultimate scene if it's not done within uh, marriage, why does it repress uh, copulation? Here we should make the, the last uh, step. <coughs> I claim that here 
we have another problem even with Hegel, namely, uh, uh, why is Christianity, Lacan made this point nicely, why is Christianity so, sorry, why is sexuality so traumatic for Christianity? Lacan spells out the secret. It's not that because we have a big struggle between spirituality of belief and brutal bodily satisfaction, lust. No, Christianity is prohibited precisely because it's on its own too spiritual, too metaphysical even. Because what does sexuality mean? Passionate love, Tristan, and so on. It's precisely the elementary form of metaphysics, of moving beyond natural needs of copulation, and so on, and so on. This is why Freud focuses on sexuality, not because it's the most natural thing about us, but because there, as it were, metaphysics begin. In what sense? Just imagine, it's a very stupid example. Imagine that you live like a human animal, you have a nice time, and so on, and then you got obsessed by sexual passion. It's exactly the same as a metaphysical passion. All your daily rhythms, biorhythms are perturbed. You are obsessed by a properly metaphysical idea, an idea which totally disturbs your normal biorhythm and so on and so on. So uh, in hating, in oppressing sexuality, Christianity fights its internal enemy. It's not that sexuality is too bodily immediate. No, it's that precisely sexuality is too metaphysical. Christianity allows for sexuality. People tend to neglect this, even in paradise. In paradise, as St. Augustine knew it well, you have sex, but it's a common natural sex. He says, Augustine then, of course, uh, Adam and Eve were doing certain things in paradise, but he claims he didn't have this excessive passionate element. He says erection was not this excessive uh, uncontrollable thing. He says that for Adam to get an erection was just the same act at your disposal as, as raising your hand. You know, you did it just as another job. And then Augustine, incidentally, you must read this, it's in, uh, De Nuptis et Concupiscentia, his work on sexuality, short text, where in a wonderful way he develops how sexuality proper is not sin, but it's a punishment for our sin. The idea is this one. By eating from the tree of knowledge, Adam wanted to be like gods, you know, like know too much and so on, be master of the universe. So it's an incredible theory. So. God punished him, how? By exempting from man's power the one organ, penis. He says, literally, Augustine quotes some example of Hindu uh, saints who can control even their heart beating and so on, but he says, but we cannot control our penis. <laughs> I mean, it can rise when you don't want to, when you desperately want to, it doesn't. And he says, this is divine intervention to remind us, <laughs> who are you to be like me when you don't control even elements in your own house, as it were? So again, the problem is arrogance. 
to be like God. And it would be wonderful, I don't have time now, to provide a Freudian reading of, 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 of the Bible along these lines. For example, already Hegel drew attention to one contradiction, inconsistency, which is crucial. You know, what happened happens with the fall. On the one hand, you know, the idea is that as a punishment for eating from the tree of knowledge, and so on, it says in the Bible that, uh, that uh, Adam became uh, mortal, has to work, and so on. So it's the fall from immortality to mortality. But at the same time, the reproach is that Adam ate from the tree of knowledge because he wants to become more than natural. Like It, it gets much more complex. So again, what I want to say here is that uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, the lesson is this one, that we have something, maybe, I'm even not sure about that. We have something like natural sexuality, maybe, with animals. But then, and here Hegel is too short. Why? Because Hegel's, Hegel's description of sexuality is still that there is natural sexuality, like just, you know, copulation, you follow your instincts, like every, I don't know when animals couple, whatever. And then we humans uh, civilize it, culturalize it, like if I want to sleep with a woman, I just don't knock her down with a stone and do it, but I write poems, I invite, whatever. Like, we do it with more civilized way. But Hegel, I think, is here not at his own level, and so on. Because he should have known that there is something in between the two. What we try to culturalize through our symbolic practices of seduction is not natural sexuality. It's precisely that metaphysical excess of death drive, for example, as in Tristan and Isolde, the night of the world, the end of all, and so on and so on. There is, and Kant himself also had a presentiment of this when he de develops in his writings of uh, education. They are wonderful. He says that, he, there he provides this unique definition of human being. He says, man is an animal who needs a master. Why? Then he goes into this that human that human hu human is an animal which has in excess for natural needs a kind of perverse wildheit, wildheit, rage and so on, which is totally uncontrollable, totally unnatural. And this so the target of education is not our nature, our natural instincts, but a weird denaturalized excess, which is incidentally what Freud calls death drive and so on and so on. And now, just to, if you allow me just to tiny little bit, just to conclude, I claim that today, where we live today, it's a very contradictory time, it's a very general diagnosis, but nonetheless, this wound of sexuality, this danger of sexuality, excess of sexuality, this radical negativity in sexuality, absolute passion. We try to control it more and more. And although we live in permissive times, it's effectively they are more and more oppressive times at the same time. Because, you know, to repeat my old joke, like, it's like, that story that I always repeat, you know, you are, uh, uh, you know, you can have alcohol, a beer, but without alcohol. You can have 
you can have uh, uh, coffee without caffeine and hell you can have sex but it must be healthy sex and whatever and so on and so on i did the model of sex i experienced it once no don't be afraid i didn't do it i just read it when i was <laughs> flying across atlantic in one of those how is it called hemispheres or what the journal you get there, the review forecast of United Airlines, and it was a text praising sex. But you know how? It totally depressed me. It proved that we should make love as often as possible because it's good for our heart. It counts like training. It's better than jogging. Then, especially if you do it in different positions, your muscles will be well developed. And then the most depressive part, if you kiss a lot and do a lot of fellatio and cunnilingus, it's a much greater chance that when you will be old, uh, saliva will not be dripping for your mouth. It's totally, you know, that's how, totally, totally depressive. So now, the concluding moment. I claim that uh, more and more we are libidinally, even if we do it with another partner, still, the logic is more and more that of pregenital partial drives, which is why, just a couple of points, which we already maybe know them, I develop them all the time, two features. First, uh, uh, first did you notice how more and more, what is our everyday ideology? It's no longer that, you know, love is uh, good, you know, this traditional, okay, the original traditional one in Catholic Church was sex is okay if it's for procreation, you know, which incidentally always intrigued me. Because if you want to be a Christian, it means you must be metaphysical. Copulation shouldn't be, if copulation is something spiritual, it precisely shouldn't be just procreation. I mean, I'm always tempted to say to a priest who gives me this bullshit that you know, sex, yes, but for children, like, are you a vulgar materialist or what? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, Hegel knew this, that how you overcome biology, precisely that you take an activity which has a, a biological goal, but you suspend that goal. You made it into a goal in itself. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, uh, it's interesting how today, what is our predominant ideology? It's no longer mega passionate affair. No, we are more and more. Uh, it's something like what I call ironically enlightened Western Buddhist hedonism, you know. Do it, but first be creative, change partners, uh, experiment, reinvent yourself. And then here I can quote Judith Butler, this performative in acting, or Catherine Malabu, plasticity, and so on. The point being, as, as fake Buddhists would have said, uh, don't get too attached to worldly object, you know, don't fall into it too much. So no wonder that, maybe you know this story, but I like it, it's typical. Did you notice how even in, in Hollywood strange things are happening lately? Sex is disappearing, a proof. Did you see the one before the last James Bond, Quantum of Solace? Did you notice a strange thing? Although the Bond girl, sorry for this, for this sexist remark, uh, Olga Korilenko is beautiful, First James Bond film without the sex act. 
at the end, you know, the standard feature of previous James Bond movies is at the end, finally, they do it. But then it's a nice Lacanian big other touch. Then usually they discover that they're observed by some satellite and <laughs> M or Q, all those. But here it's no, and even worse, because Quantum of Solace is a good movie politically. Did you notice? It's basically James Bond uh, saves uh, Morales regime in Bolivia explicit from some international uh, bad corporation which masks as green organization or whatever. But what I want to say is that, uh, let's go to the lowest of the lowest, uh, Dan Brown. No sex in, in uh, no sex, of course, you cannot screw Christ's uh, grand granddaughter. No sex in, uh, in uh, Da Vinci Code. Even worse, the last Dan Brown movie, Angels and Demons. In the novel, there is sex between Robert Langdon and that Italian Vittoria Vetra uh, uh, scientist girl. In the movie, they, sex is out. Can you imagine Hollywood, which usually was adding sex to make it more commercial? It's now, so again, what we get here, if you ask me, is this obsession with, with what? I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but here, but Alain Badiou gave me a nice idea when he drew attention to the fact that in French and in English, the word we use when we fall in love is precisely fall. We fall in love. And Badiou noticed once, then I also noticed in some US publicities for, for this dating marriage agencies, a couple of them use this word play. We will enable you to be in love without the fall. The idea is, in today's dynamic time where you have to work all the time, who has the time to fall? Fall is too risky. You open yourself, it's dangerous. So no wonder that today I claim we are returning to that medieval strategy of, you know, instead of relatives, it is agencies, dating agencies, and, and so on, who tell you who will be your partner, and so on. On the other hand, what we get is more and more important role of these sex gadgets and so on. And I'm not saying now that real sex is disappearing. I'm saying something much more refined, I hope so, that even when we really do it with a real person, we treat the real person as an object to masturbate, if I may put it this way. What do I mean by this? Uh, you know, we usually define masturbation as you do it with an imagined partner, no? Like, you really do it to yourself, you just imagine. But I claim more and more real sex is turning into masturbation with a real partner. You know what, like, and here, the problem is precisely that, that, that self, not homoerotic, but how we call it, autoerotic structure is more and more asserting itself, even when you do it with the real partner. Real partner functions as a masturbatory toy and so on and so on. And this is from the beginning in modern philosophy. You remember Immanuel Kant in his Metaphysics of Morse provided a definition of marriage, which is the best that I know, which shocked Hegel and all of them, if you don't believe me, check it up, metaphysic of Morse, not Grundlegung, not the foundation, but the system where 
he says marriage is a contract between two adult people of the mutual use of their sex organs for pleasure. No bullshit about spiritual use. <laughs> and Kant means it seriously. And this is the Kant that I love. Look one page later when, quite seriously, he debates what the consequences of this definition of marriage. And he asks the question, if I am married to a lady and I run away, does the lady have the right to call a policeman to bring me back? Kant says yes, but because I run away with something that is part her property, my penis, because I signed the contract with her, you know. So uh, what I'm saying that this structure, masturbatory structure, is already there in Kant. So then, can we still save authentic love, romance, and so on? I think we can. How? The Guardian magazine, but I didn't, wasn't allowed to develop that to the end, so even if you know the story, you don't know all of it. Uh, Ask me uh, a year ago, some, uh, uh, some, uh, they, they made some, they asked a couple of uh, relatively well-known people, can romance still be shaped today? And I proposed how to, what would have been the ideal sex today? You know that you don't have only uh, dildos, plastic penises. Now you also have, and I love the name, plastic vaginas. I saw one, it's called stamina training unit. It's <laughs> like a light, and then it's so practical. It looks like, how do you call it, flashlight, so that it looks innocent, but then you take off the top, and then you have six, seven plastic models. Vagina opening, mouth opening, anal opening, and you get them. You can get them in different forms and so on. Then you get. Uh, then you can regulate through battery how quickly it shakes, whatever and so on. Okay, it's a masturbatory device. But my idea of ideal, maybe it's my age, not being so young, sex today would be this one. I make a date with a lady. She comes with her dildo. I come with my stamina training unit, <laughs> we sit down, we plug in both machines, we put dildo into stamina training unit and just observe the two machines buzzing with, and then real pleasure comes. I can sit down, we can sit down with the lady, uh, uh, have a tea, debate like with Avital, debate, debate theory and so on. We did our superego duty. Pleasure is done out there for us. Now you will say, but nonetheless, is this all? No, my absolutely ideal sex would have been if we did the duty. Machines are buzzing there. But then by chance, while I'm serving tea to the lady or she, our hands touch briefly, and who knows, it goes on, it goes on, maybe we finish in bed. But it would be pure sex because it will not be superego. You know, the duty is done. It would be pure surplus. That's the only authentic sex that I imagine today. Because, uh, again, you think I am exaggerating here, but I really think that uh, this is like, I'll put it in this way, against political correctness. You can misagree, disagree with me here. There is no intense sex without harassment. In what sense harassment? If you strictly apply rules of rules against 
harassment. Then the only without harassment sex to do is a pure contractual sex. You make it clear in advance and so on, you know, do a contract. If you don't have this background, then at some point, one of the two partners has to make a pass, this unambiguous move, which can always retroactively be dismissed or proclaimed, or proclaimed a harassment. And to give you an example of this politically correct sex, Julian Assange told me, you know, the Swedish case against him, that now what they are, and I checked it up with my Swedish friends, it's not yet enacted, but they, two years ago, one year ago, they were seriously debating it. This is for me the nightmare. Let's say I'm flirting with a lady, we both want to do it, but we want to be sure. So they propose that they will distribute around bureaucratic forms where you will, each partner puts uh, bo both names, age, religion, do you have AIDS, all the data, and both sign it. And then you are safe, you can do it your way. Because in Sweden they have these strict rules that if you, if you don't tell something to your partner, which the partner may consider it crucial, then even if she or he dragged you to bed, you are a rapist, retroactively. For example, if you are a Protestant and your partner hates Protestants, and if you lie to him or her that you are a Catholic, and if she or he learns this later, you become a rapist. <laughs> so to fight this, you do, you do a contract. But perversion is never asleep, because I, in my dirty mind, immediately imagine a much more intense sex where you forget about those stupid sweating and just Play the game, do you have another forum? Let's fill in another <laughs> forum or whatever, you know. So again, what I want to say is that, uh, is that this is why more generally, I, let's not misunderstand me, when we are dealing with real rape and so on, I mean, I don't have a problem with death penalty even. Um, it's not that I'm in any way soft about it. All I'm saying is that harassment is an ambiguous category. On the one hand, yes, they are, there are cases of harassment and they should be brutally punished, no problem. On the other hand, isn't it that the image of man, of a, sorry, human person, beneath this obsession with harassment is a weird narcissistic self-defensive image where another human being is perceived as an object of potential threat and then you know, like, I look at you, I was already accused of all of this, I look you into the eye, a woman, oh, visual rape, I talk dirty, verbal rape, and so on and so on. What I'm saying is that, in this sense, harassment, let's not be, or if tolerance is treated as harassment, it can mean its exact opposite. Fear of harassment means I don't tolerate your overpresence remain at a proper distance. Which is why many liberal friends that I have, left liberal, are implicitly racist. You know why? Because uh, they like Mexicans, blacks, and so on and so on. But when you really meet them, they are for them usually too intrusive, you know? Like, 
Blacks are nice, but why that loud music or whatever, you know? Chinese are nice, but why does their food have to smell in such way? You know, there is always something that this excess of pleasures which makes the other the subject of desire. That's the problem for me. And again, uh, here I follow my colleague, with whom I have now a great polemic, but nonetheless, Robert Pippin, the Hegelian, who developed very nicely that Hegel can be used in a wonderful way as a theorist of modern abstract art. And I claim in the same way, if you just correct Hegel in the spirit of Hegel, Hegel can be used as a theorist of sexuality today and so on and so on, namely not the Hegel of final reconciliation, but the Hegel of negativity which cannot ever be controlled. You find this as I developed in my big fat book, Less Than Nothing, and that's the Hegelian wound again to conclude. You have in Hegel this idea, it's incredible, read it, the beginning of his philosophy of spirit, part three of his encyclopedia, uh, the beginning, uh, anthropology, Hegel's theory of madness. It's better than Foucault, my God. Hegel develops how our entire symbolic universe, culture, the, uh, emerges as a defense against a threat of madness. You cannot pass from animal to human without the moment of madness, which is precisely what Freud would have called death drive and so on. Again, you will say this is an exception. No, again, he don't forget that. Hegel's final vision, it's incredible how people miss the point when they said Hegel had his theory of state, a corporate state with, and so on. Wait a minute. What does Hegel say in his most famous statement in Philosophy of Right? You know that the all of Minerva takes off in the evening, which means that you can grasp, conceptualize a certain form of life only when it's already disappearing, when its time is over in reality. Do you think Hegel was so stupid that he wasn't aware that this holds precisely also for his own vision of corporate state? I mean, Hegel was, uh, 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 Hegel was absolutely not, here Fukuyama and those guys who read Hegel as proposing a model there are wrong. Hegel definitely was not proposing a model there. He was describing a life form which is already passé. And again, the same here. And let's not forget that at the very end of Hegel's philosophy of history, you don't get this prosaic uh, bourgeois state, uh, constitutional monarchy where, no, you get war. Abstract negativity of war returned. This Hegel of death drive, this Hegel should be reasserted, I claim, more than ever today. I'm sorry if I was too long, but fuck it, what can you do? You had to <laughs> suffer it, no. Thank you very much. Do we play democracy for five minutes or are we thrown out? What? Do we play democracy for five That's minutes? That's up to you. Are you, do you want to hear anything? I don't want to, but I have to pretend <laughs> that I want to, so let's do it briefly, okay? Okay, very briefly, um, thank you for your edifying lecture. You can ask me such nice questions, you know, like, uh, 
Why are you so bright and at the same time such a nice person? Or these questions I like, you know. No, sorry, be evil, be evil, please. No, thank you very much for sharing. I don't do, share. Do, um, would anyone like to make a non-psychotic intervention happen here? <laughs> you're, you're brave to have raised your hand without... Sorry, who? Concern. Yeah. <laughs> if you start from what we know yeah. and imagine and see in the experience of a, of a child, uh, what, their in, what their bodily bonding yeah. is. And if and we read adult sexuality in terms of what that leads us to think about it. I see, okay, a nice but, question, but what I would have said is that first, we always have in all great theories, Hegel, Freud, even Lacan up to his neck, we have inconsistencies in the sense that they say one thing, but they actually, if you follow their thought, it's more in it. And I think this is with all great thinkers. When you discover something great, you are never fully aware what you do. In this sense, it may look like what you said. I mean, infidel sexuality from the standpoint already of adult. But I claim, and that's what I try to develop maybe in a little bit uh, naive to associative way, I know that for me, the lesson of Freud is nonetheless that precisely, and that's why fantasy is fundamental for human sexuality, that we never get rid of infantile theories, infantile sexuality, that there is no maturity. It, we are, animals are maybe mature, but we humans are not. It gets thwarted. As what you said about, uh, uh, sorry, what was uh, the first one about uh, the first? The knowledge of good and ah, evil. Ah, knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, but you know what the Hegelian answer would have been, and I tend to agree with him here, that knowledge as such is evil. Hegel accepts this. That, you, that was the quote that I gave. You know, it's uh, trying to learn the difference between good, uh, for trying to learn the difference between good and evil, you are formally already on the side of evil. And, he, and he, so Hegel's point is that only against the background of formally already being within evil, you then can fight for good and grad, you know, Turning good is a long process, which has to begin with evil. Again, not evil in the sense of, but evil in this purely formal way. And Hegel goes pretty much to the end here, that's what I like, you know, that he even proclaims Jesus Christ a monstrosity. He has, that's why I put as a title of that book, uh, uh, The Monstrosity of Christ. No, he says, das ungeheure, that, that uh, so that, uh, uh, his idea is that a breakthrough, that it, the same goes even for religion or whatever, that a breakthrough, a new, has to appear as evil first. So uh, uh, when you return, uh, the point uh, you made about, you said that there is something important here, knowledge of good and evil and so on. I wonder... My, it may sound even a mystical answer, but I would be tempted to say here that I don't think you can simply oppose some pure objective scientific knowledge, and then on the top of it there is ethical knowledge, 
good and evil and so on and so on. Spinoza maybe tried it, but he failed, I claim. You know, in this, so that I was tempted to develop a French Lacanian, with whom I don't agree politically, and linguist Jean-Claude Milner, wrote a wonderful book, it's an obscene book, I love it, short one, Le Sage Trompeur, The Cheating Wise Man, Wise Guy. It's a brutal attack on Spinoza, not anti-Semitic, but quite opposite, claiming that, and I love this theory, claiming that basically that Jewish court or whatever, which excommunicated, that they were right, basically. And his point is, Precisely, you know, this uh, Spinoza's idea that, to put it in modern language, that normative statements, good, evil, can be translated into terms of positive knowledge. He says, for example, this is Spinoza's reading of God's uh, prohibitions, injunctions, you know, then. Then he even takes somewhere, I think, this example, don't eat from the tree of knowledge or the apple, you know, whatever should really be read just as a statement of fact. It's just the forum is wrongly uh, deontological, ethical. But it's just, if you eat from that evil, there will be painful consequences, whatever, whatever, no? So I, I am here more on, I am uh, uh, here more on this, uh, how to put it, uh, Jewish Kantian Hegelian side, how to put it, against this, uh, against this, uh, this pantheism is not a good term here. Uh, against this, uh, against this monistic ontology which you find in Deleuze and so on and so on in all of them. But maybe this is too much. I, I'd like to throw in another name to yeah. to this question, which yeah. would be that of Nietzsche, who loved Eve as the first scientist and the first uh, one to go after knowledge against the man and, um, and became the model for Nietzschean um, inquiry and striving I have beyond good and evil. Yeah, right? I have problems with Nietzsche, but not in the sense that I think he is bad, but I, I didn't yet enter Nietzsche. I openly admit it. I, I have problems, didn't succeed. But uh, here about Eve, I agree, you know where also? When Lacan says that woman is, by definition, hysterical, this is usually dismissed as uh, uh, male chauvinism. No, but Lacan means almost the opposite. He, the opposite of hysterical subject is here either master or a pervert. And Lacan praises his theory. Master is an idiot, by definition. Master is the one who really thinks that he's a master, blah, blah. Pervert is the worst for Lacan. It's a very interesting position. I agree with it, that uh, Lacan is totally opposed to this uh, celebration of perverse position as more radical than hysteria. It was fashionable when you are, I, I was young in the 70s, all the student movement. The idea was a hysterical subject is ambiguous. A hysterical subject just provokes the master, but in this provocation, it's not a true rejection of the master, but just a call to a better new master, while hysteria, sorry, while a pervert goes to the end, really does it. I claim, on the contrary, that Lacan was right when he emphasized that pervert position always fits a power structure 
Actually, the true subversive position is that of hysterical subject, which is why for Lacan, he even says that science, once it is established as part of institution, is university discourse, but that science in its moment of invention has hysterical structure and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. I even think that, but this is another long story, that against the usual slander of Descartes, you know, that Cogito is really male chauvinist and so on, I think it can be shown in a precise analysis, which I cannot do now, of course, that Cogito is effectively feminine. It, which is why, do you know this? It's, these are wonderful news. I, have a, a footnote where I point to this, that uh, the first modern feminism was by a pupil of Descartes. And even women, not just Queen Christina, of, not just Greta Garbo, I mean, or whatever, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, many women enthusiastically accepted Descartes, and the motive of why was precisely cogito has no sex. They experienced this as a liberation from that pre-modern, you know, yin, yang, uh, feminine, masculine principle, and so on and so on. So yes, but I have other points about yeah, Nietzsche. But I wanted to say Descartes also decided to write in French, and when Kant decided to write in German, all these Frauengesellschaften, or women's societies, started reading Kant instead of the Bible. This was a big scandal. But really? Descartes' decision to write in French meant opening up philosophy to, to women no, readers. No, also, once I had a nice conversation, right. friendly, this time with Judith Butler, and she agreed. I told her, look, for me, the wall that she is trying to say this, you know, contingent, performative enactment of our particular identity, the birth of authentic, not this politically correct shit, multiculturalism is, you know where at the beginning of meditations, I don't know where, Descartes says, as a young boy, I found foreign cultures strange, weird. But then I asked myself, what if from the foreigner's standpoint, ours is all, you know, this, it's not enough to tolerate others. You have to experience the contingency of your own position. This was Descartes. So I never got this fury against Descartes. How everyone almost, you know, Descartes is the absolutely shared enemy of almost everyone today. <laughs> you know, like Heidegger, Descartes, birth of modern subjectivism, name them. Habermas, Heidegger too, mono, non-dialogical, we need community or whatever, and so on and so on. No, I think that, that uh, I agree here on many points, I don't agree with him. But here, I agree with Alain Badiou that three, the three absolute philosophers in the history of philosophy are Plato, uh, Descartes, and Hegel. Why? Because they defined an entire epoch in a negative way. About, apropos Descartes, Foucault said in a wonderful way, already early Foucault, that the entire philosophy, history of philosophy, can be defined as a history of attempts to refute uh, Descartes, uh, sorry, Plato, no? And uh, the same goes for the entire modern philosophy, different ways to screw Plato, and 19th, 20th century, how to be anti-Hegelian, you know? <laughs> and these are, I think, still the three great, the three great guys. Maybe another one, or 
No, but what I also like about <laughs> Nietzsche is he has this wonderful idea of unilateral gift, how to break out of what he says about disarmament, for example. And you know that Nietzsche, whom all people usually take as, oh, the philosopher of domination, master, no? He has some wonderful passages on how vulgar the idea of a mastery, how broken, what a miserable entity you have to be if, if you have the need to dominate others, and so on and so on, you know? No, 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 you I... You seem penetrated by Nietzsche to me. <laughs> You mean this in a Deleuzean way? You know what I mean. You know Deleuze said that philosophy is anal penetration and so on. I do mean it that way. <laughs> okay, one and more. One more. Um, yes. Please. Isn't this Hegelian ontology of uh, internal difference also open for other appropriations in the sense that how can there be any defense against the Hegelian who, who locates difference internally but locates the real of capital differently? Like, uh, for example, in Contingency uh, Hegemony Universality, Laclau says that you're incorrect to say that the real capital is in the slums and the favelas. Right? He says that they're actually just the hotbed for radical, for um, like gangs and some other like, activity. He says, do your homework. Yeah. Um, so how can you prove Laclau wrong? Right? What, any recourse that you have would be towards, uh, would be, wouldn't it be reinscription into a big other? or reliance upon um, a certain rationalization. So how can uh, this type of, if politics is to act without the big other, yeah. how can we um, solve disputes of which acts are without the big other? How can we dissolve disputes of the real? I see. Yeah, okay. see yeah. Let me uh, first answer to that uh, slums and so on. I think I was just shocked when Ernesto, when Laclau wrote that. I definitely don't mean to elevate slums into a privileged new revolutionary subject and so on. I'm just saying that it's, to use but use terms, one of the potential eventual sites. I'm well aware I was there on the reality of slums, mostly either religious fundamentalists or mafia, gang-dominated, whatever. But uh, first, you know what a massive phenomenon slums are? I mean, like, one-fifth of the people on our earth already are living on slums. And I think that to exclude them, but uh, I think that the least you can say is that Ernesto's dismissing of slums, for example, in Brazil, they were furious when he said that you know that one of the most sublime uh, 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 resistance movements, Canudos in Brazil, South, uh, no, sorry, Bahia, northern Brazil, the end of 19th century, a miracle happened. A guy called uh, Conse Consejero Antonio or whatever, again, a religious fanatic, admitted leader, gathered people, followers, who constituted Canudos inside from Salvador, a city, which I think had a couple of tens of thousand people, and it went on. Uh, all people from all around Brazil, uh, bandits, uh, uh, women, uh, I mean, uh, single women, they all came there, and it worked for 10, 20 years, and they bothered no one. And out of pure irrational violence, Brazilian government sent the army and killed them all. And then, 
Ernesto dismisses this as, oh, they were religious fanatics and so on, like our scam. No, even today they are mythical figure in. So, uh, to, so first, uh, I think Ernesto is too much excluding them. You know, in his last years, Ernesto was, for my taste, a little bit too much obsessed by becoming the Argentinian state philosopher, you know. <laughs> No, it's not dismissed. I still appreciate so him. What are you using to, okay, to say, to argue that like, he's wrong, that the slums actually have some potential? Potential. Fine, fine, but, potential. But yeah, potential. But even Maybe. to assert that, even to assert that, don't you have to, what, what are you relying upon to assert that? Some type of empirical theory, right? Some empiricism. Uh, you're giving an empirical example. Yeah. Right? Which is, yeah. Which, wouldn't that be to re-inscribe into the big other in that sense? And thus to Oh my God, now we would have to go into, into, if you raise the standard so high that every, every, uh, every listing of empirical arguments is reinscription into the great other. But isn't that yours? And that's your no. standard. What then would, no, why? Why? No, because no, no. isn't the political act precisely acting about a big other? I mean, that's what you write in, uh, in defense of lost causes, Maybe right? We, that is we would get lost today with this because, you know, things are much more uh, yeah, complex I, I would in the sense that what does it mean, act like, the way you put it, acting without big other means to be a self-murdering, self-killing uh, psychotic or whatever. Yeah. I mean, what I mean by there is no big other is simply what Lacan calls like there is no other of the other, no transcendental guarantee, contingency of the act, and so on and so on. Uh, what I'm, uh, but what, uh, for example, let's go back to Buddhism. Uh, my problem with Buddhism is elsewhere, but uh, it's true that the same as Buddhism, I also, and I say this, it's with Hegel and with Lacan. Look, with Hegel, we had, it was even predominant for some time, the conservative Hegel. Hegel was read as a critique of this uh, Western individualist liberalism, usually even some fascists, like in Italy, Giovanni Gentile and so on, you have fascist Hegelians who read fascism, fascist corporate state, as a contemporary version of Hegel's rational state. Then you have revolutionary Hegelians, and as Fred Grayson demonstrated, uh, draw attention to somewhere in a very nice way, the real big news in Hegel's studies, political news of the last decades, is the rise of a third liberal Hegel. All these Pittsburgh Hegelians recognition, the world where how you detect them, the shibboleth or what is uh, recognition, to focus on recognition. But what I find, uh, uh, I find again this Hegel very uh, problematic, this, oh, this uh, simple liberal Hegel. But what I'm saying is that uh, this is nothing that goes, nothing new, nothing that goes only for, only for, only for uh, Buddhism or whatever, this ambiguity. But your basic point, like that in order to argue or whatever, you need the big other. What, what, what do you mean here by exactly by big other? Big other is not just symbolic order as such. Big other is symbolic order, let's say, with a pretense to consistency, grounding, and so on. And, uh, and uh, the point here, there is no difference here at this level between me and Ernesto. By his version, Ernesto's, Laclau's story, of there is no big other is simply society doesn't exist. 
that should say society is an open field of uh, open field of hegemonic struggle uh, and so on and so on. My problem with Ernesto is elsewhere. It's not as he accuses me that I still believe in some working class fundamentalism and so on. It's maybe capitalism. I don't accept his idea that fighting capitalism is just one in among the plurality of struggle. You know, his idea is that we have a whole series of struggles, feminist struggle, anti-capitalist struggle, political struggle, whatever, and that they are just a chain without privileging one. No, I claim that, that the structuring principle of today's, and I'm not demonizing capitalism, it's a, the most dynamic, productive invention in the history of humanity. But I claim, and I don't think this is essentially, an, uh, 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 this is necessarily, sorry, an essentialist thesis, that, uh, that uh, capitalism is something stronger, it's the universal structuring principle of our societies. By this, I mean the following. I claim that for Ernesto and Chantal move, that they are also not consequent in their advocacy of, uh, in their defense of the idea that there is multiplicity of struggles which are contingent, open, and so on. They clearly privilege political struggle. You know, the, it's absolutely clear that, and here they effectively are part, although they are not French, of the French tradition. This is my general problem also with my excellent friend, uh, Alain Badiou, he proclaims to be, and he is in a sense, communist, blah, blah, but did you notice how in all his political texts, apart from generalities about ooh, exploitation, capital, he really doesn't need Marxist critique of political economy. Does Ernesto need it? No. I think we need it more than ever today. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be critical of Marx here. There is a big problem, and I, uh, in London at the debate, you know your big uh, capital popularizer guy, David Harvey. I asked him a simple question. Because he said he tries to popularize, you know, so the actuality of capital. I asked him a simple question. So-called uh, labor theory of value. Yes or no? He said, I don't know, I'm not sure. Mm. My God. Because, you know, the problem is this one, and this is, for me, the deadlock of today's Marxists and so on. If you apply, my God, how many times for saying this I was interrupted by leftists. If you apply labor theory of value, literally, in a too direct way, you must say today that United States are exploiting Venezuela. Because, uh, it's clear that most of the wealth of Venezuela comes from oil, and the irony is that when Marx tries to demonstrate that the exclusive, I agree here with Marx, but it should be put in a different way, more refined, the only source of value is labor, that natural products don't have, in this sense, value. You know what's Marx's example of Marx? Oil, precisely <laughs> oil. So uh, what I'm claiming is that if you drop value, so-called labor theory of value, how then do you justify the use of the term exploitation? 
Because, you know, Marx is very precise here. For Marx, exploitation is just as this empirical fact, I exploit you. It has the precise structure, surplus value, and so on and so on. So if you, so it was a very comical scene in London. That he said, no, I don't know what, and so on. And then I went into my religious mood. I started in a friendly way to shout at him. I said that Jesus was created to redeem us, you know. The city of, Los, uh, of San Francisco was created, here things got more nasty, so that Hitchcock was able to shoot vertigo in it, no? And you were created by God to explain what is uh, a labor theory of value, no? Like, how can you justify your... No, you know what I think? This is absolutely... So I agree here with friend Jameson, although I have great problems with his knowledge of economy, that... Uh, one of the things that I don't like about this Frenchified, French political theory, is their exclusive focus almost on power, power relations and the opposition to state. You know, like mul mul multitude versus state, representation, and so on and so on. And uh, where is the exploitation? I think that if the left will somehow, I'm more and more doubtful, reinvent itself. We have to have a new theory of exploitation. This, all this power analysis, are we controlled by blah, 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 it's not enough. I, I'm, all these micro-mechanisms of power, blah, 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 it's exploitation, which is why, and that's another consequence, I also don't share what many French theorists have this absolute opposition to state power. You know, as if uh, this is the great motto that even if they are enemies, all of them agree with mostly Agamben, but you name them that, uh, namely that authentic politics is at a distance from state. Okay, then I always ask them, uh, but what does this mean? That we don't care who is in power in state, then they say, no, not, I, I think that I'm here much more brutal. That's why I support Syriza in Greece. I'm brutal here. Grab all the power you can, my God. And even if at the end it will not work, it's worth trying to put it in naive terms, you know? I'm not a Marxist. I'm a Hegelian here. Marx was, for me, too naive. He thought he has a formula of historical development. He thought that we can see, almost in a theological way, the orientation of history, and that we can act accordingly. No? Working class organized into proletarian movement, you see the necessity of, not a necessity, it's more open, like the unique chance of proletarian revolution, blah, blah. For Hegel, this is way too much to say. Hegel would never have accepted something like this. For Hegel, Hegel was aware of something which was aptly vastly confirmed by 20th century that in an, an act always fails. You try to do something, something else emerges, and so on and so on. This is why I think Hegel would be fascinated by the 20th century. How? October Revolution, an authentic at the beginning, I still believe up to a point in Lenin, you know. Attempt at liberation, up. You get Stalinism them and so on. These are wonderful reversals. So I simply, I don't 
think we can propose a vision of the new in that thing. I think you try, you do something, you fail, but as a byproduct, uh, 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 the, the entire situation changes uh, and so on and so on. So uh, again, my problem with Laclau, although again, in contrast to him, who really spit on me whenever possible, dismiss me, I want to draw the attention that I still treat him basically in a respectful way. I admit that his theory of antagonism, hegemony, is a wonderful achievement, it's a great achievement, and so on and so on, you know. My problem with him is just that, uh, like, we had this big clash about democracy, when he was still for democracy. But then, with Chavez, he all of a sudden considered that you also can have good military dictatorship or whatever. It, things, get, things get complex, but what I think, maybe this was the big story, then I will stop, I talk too much, I know. My problem was that, and maybe some of you will disagree with me, that with all my sympathy for what is happening in some Latino American countries, I don't think they are it, you know, the formula of the new. It's not it. It's nice, it's better than happening nothing, but it's not like it really happens there now. It's not the formula of the new, if you ask me. I, I don't believe that this is like some people like Tariq Ali, all enthusiastic, says now Europe should look towards uh, Latin America. No, I mean, I'm almost getting more and more Eurocentric, you know, in what sense? Like, Friends are telling me now, oh, Europe is out. You see, things are now happening. That's the new hope. Egypt, all those countries, no, Tunis. And then I tell them, yeah, I know. That's why they are building walls, because Europeans try to emigrate there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm sorry. I think that I'm, you know, in what sense I'm Eurocentric? Not, of course, in the imperialist sense, but in the sense that there is something in European legacy worth fighting for. The idea of egalitarianism, radical emancipation, and so on and so on, we should shamelessly assert it. And this doesn't mean falling to Islamophobia and so on and so on. No, no. I, my idea is that Europe is very successful in ruining itself now. The true danger to European identity is this new rise of, uh, of anti-immigrant right, which, you know, in the last European elections, they were a total ethico-political catastrophe. In many countries, great countries, like France, England, the anti-immigrant populists emerged as the strongest uh, single party. This is the true uh, danger to Europe. But I still think that I wouldn't, because of this, simply uh, uh, discard Europe. I, I, even I even don't accept this simple, stupid rejection of uh, human rights are just an imperialist tool, you know. It's more complex. From the very beginning, they were, of course, human rights, you can make this Marxist analysis, you know. They were really secretly privileging white, rich people, and so on. From the very beginning, they were the terrain of the struggle. Women said, why not we also? Blacks said in Haiti, why not we also? So and how so many courses are you still teaching at NYU, too? Two. So people should go to these courses, <laughs> because he has this so much a to wise, teach us. a nice way to say, shut up and fuck off. <laughs> uh, but I would also add a name 
um, who, who treats the question that you raised, that it's Derrida, no. about Allá. the appropriations of Nietzsche and Hegel and how they can become part of a fascistic or a left-wing yeah, yeah. uh, movement and how, how these philosophical texts and rogue itineraries no. get, get picked Here up. Here, I totally agree with you. I must say this Great. with all my so problematic we don't want to exploit you. Sorry? No, <laughs> with my uh, a problematic relationship to Derrida, but I must say something. Derrida never was this caricatural image of a simplistic deconstruction. If you know, Hegel is totality, the worst. No, when he was asked or addresses the point in, I think, maybe even La Différence on some early already short text, is there one name in the history of philosophy which is like almost already there? He names Hegel. Right. He was well aware that, you know, this stupid idea that Hegel is the embodiment of all the, you know, totality, everything rationally no. explained, and then you uh, come with this bullshit. But there is something that resists Aufhebung and so on. No, Derrida even says, I think, in Glass or mm. where, yeah. that there is an almost invisible, almost no difference between Aufhebung and his uh, deconstruction. Exactly, he's a big Hegelian. Yeah, this like is why you. I like the uh, <laughs> debate between him and Catherine uh, Malabu before she unfortunately joined our enemies, no? Yeah. But you now I heard together, uh, she joined the new materialists, no? Yeah, well, we can get her back, I think. Yeah, we keep it, these kinds a, of filibusters. No, not here. <laughs> you know how you get her back. Uh, not directly Gulag, uh, re-education camp, getting up at five in the morning, long in the evening, writing. I think she misses us. Sorry? She misses us. She defected, but she wants to come back. I can feel it. We will read you because it's not a problem, because in re-education camp, she will have friends like you then to, to That's be. That's a bitch. Okay, everyone, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs>